Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guests are Kevin and Matthew McManus. Kevin and Matthew are filmmakers and TV writers whose works include The Block Island Sound, American Vandal, Funeral Kings, Cobra Kai, 13 Cameras, and more. They write as a duo, and they are also brothers. The Block Island Sound, which I mentioned, released on Netflix on March 11th, and they wrote, directed, and produced that. Very exciting that that is now out in the world. Kevin and Matt, thanks for coming on the show. How are you feeling with this film coming out? Feeling good. Yeah, thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, we're excited. I think it's our first worldwide release, like where it's just the same drop on the same day. And so that's been exciting, reaching audiences all over the world and this tiny little movie that we kind of just were able to put together. So yeah, it's, we're coming up the tails of the release now and it's, it's been an exciting couple of weeks. My first question is always, where are you in the world? I know we talked about it briefly before we started the podcast and I believe you're on the West Coast, but where are you guys specifically and how has quarantine affected you? We're both in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And yeah, quarantine has been weird. You know, we finished this movie at the beginning of quarantine and we were, well, finished the post process. And I think we were in the middle of the sound mix when it went down. I remember thinking at the time, we'll just wait a couple of weeks for this whole thing to blow over. And then of course, a couple of weeks turned into a whole year. And in the meantime, we've outfitted my little garage office with surround sound so we could hear the mixes back and forth. And it's been a very weird, different process, a different rollout than we've ever had before because of COVID. But all things considered, we're doing all right. Would love, before we get into process, to talk about your origin story. Usually when we talk to co-writers, their story begins when they meet, maybe in college. But for you guys, you're brothers. So it's different. So can you walk <laughs> us through your origin we wrote, story? At what point did you start creating stuff together? Right in the womb. We wrote our first uh, <laughs> pilot. In the womb. <laughs> we started when we were kids. We, I think the first movie we made was with our action figures. It's called Ninja Turtles 13. So we assumed they would never get to number 13. And my dad filmed it and he labeled the VHS Bubba's Baby Bath, which was our nickname growing up. And we were so disappointed that our title got changed out. It was the first time dealing with a really strict producer. <laughs> that was the, the kind of genesis of like whatever it was, four years old. But we got serious about making movies when we were probably like 11, I think. My dad started letting us use the video camera that he had. And we'd shoot around the house. And eventually he said, hey, dad, you think we could take this to our buddy Andy's house? And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, if you're really careful with it. And then we just never looked back. We ran the camera into the ground, just shot every weekend with our buddy Andy Gould. and just brought all our buddies into it and just couldn't stop making movies. And I think you work out a lot of, of the hairy parts of having a, you know, a writing partner, creative partner, when you're both going through your teenage years together and butting heads then. By now, we've really worked out how to communicate with each other. We don't really get in the same kind of 
slapping fights and arguments that we used to when we were 12 years old. Love that. Can you walk us through your career trajectory from that point to this point where you know, you've got a film on Netflix, obviously you've written for TV. So can you, for those writers listening, walk us through what you've worked on and also what are your priorities? Are you guys primarily focusing on features now? Do you want to keep working on being TV writers? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, yeah, we were making movies when we were kids. We went to film school at Emerson College and met a bunch of other filmmakers who were super talented. And I think we learned more from them than even a lot of our classes. And I've been lucky enough to continue to work with them after the fact. We made our first movie. It was called Funeral Kings a year after college. And there's this kind of feeling where you make your first movie and you're like, all right, I'm grinding it out now, but I'm going to make that movie. And then once that movie's out, I'll be a celebrated filmmaker and everything's <laughs> going to be easy street from now on. And then you make your first movie. And sure enough, afterwards, you're still working odd jobs and PAing. And I think we did a little bit of extra work back then. And there's nothing more humbling than feeling like a big shot director and then all of a sudden realizing that you're the lowest guy in the totem pole. So that was kind of the very beginning. And then eventually, that movie got into South by Southwest, which got us representation. And then we eventually switched into doing, you know, TV and, and films more professionally. But it, it was hard, you know, it's, it's a grind. I think when you're first starting out, you kind of hope it's going to be fast and painless and you kind of brace for how hard it could become. But yeah, but it was good. I mean, I look through rose-colored glasses at those times now and just really look finally back at the beginning. Yeah, at the time, and it's always... So incredibly challenging. You know, you, I look back at our first film, like, oh, that, see, that was just, that was just a pure joy the whole time. <laughs> and then remembering back, like, we were, the learning curve was so severe. We were learning everything for the first time, figuring out how to do, you know, everything on a big scale like that. But before we made funeral things, it was really just short films to be in college with friends. So expanding to a real crew. And granted, a lot of these people were friends from college, but it's just in a much bigger environment with a lot more people to kind of, wrangle and shooting instead of for a weekend you're shooting for 25 days so there's so many challenges thrown with it and it was the most stressful thing i'd ever done in my life at that point and yeah you just you kind of power through and you know we always describe it like how people describe having a baby where they're like you have a baby and it's so hard and then once you forget about how hard it was in the beginning you can't wait to have another baby and that's exactly what it's like to make a movie it's so hard and then you get enough space away from it and you can't wait to make another one and each movie feels like it's harder than the last one. I think it's just because you forget how difficult it is each time. You kind of just repress those memories. So yeah, that was our first feature. And then after that, started working in both TV. And then when we weren't staffing in a room where we were on hiatus, we'd try and run off and make another feature. And we kind of been bouncing back and forth. It's been uh, a big since. thing for us. Yeah, like we, we love to staff on shows. It's such a great gig. And we've done some things that I'm proudest of working on other shows. But then during those hiatuses, we raise money and try to make our own films and where you are really just completely have the reins of your own project. And there are times where you're starting to wonder, well, why the hell am I doing this? Because, you know, I got a pretty good TV career. And I, especially with the Block Island Sound, this last movie was pretty ambitious and pretty low budget. And there were times when shooting it where we were like, why am I doing this? This is so hard. Like, I, <laughs> this is the beginning of my career, but I got to stop. But then you come to this point where you're actually screening it and, and you realize like that's what it's all for. It's something you get so proud of and feel total autonomy over. And, and it's something that I always encourage, you know, other writers and all the writers that are, that listen to your podcast, you know, make your own stuff because 
there's nothing more fulfilling and it's the best way to show people the kind of stuff you can do and the genres you like to play in. And so, you know, as scary as it always seems, and it's scary for everybody, you know, it doesn't matter how many you make before you start making whatever the next movie is, you get a little imposter syndrome and you start wondering, can I even pull this off? And you just have to take that leap of faith and keep pushing forward. And it's just, I think it's the most fulfilling thing that, that we've found. And so I, you know, I always encourage other people to do it as well. I would love to get into your writing process, both as co-writers, but also just get into your process in general between those things you mentioned. The first question I have, how do they come about? TV writing, would you consider that more of a job? Walk us through how you categorize these different projects. There's a whole, you know, the point of view we have when making, when doing anything is that with this career, it's so important to have so many different irons in the fire at one time. And, you know, for us, it's been TV writing and features, but those, you know, separate into several different irons too, right? Where there are the features that we can go off and make ourselves. They're the ones that we're pitching to big studios. And with TV, there's the TV shows we're pitching to create and show on ourselves. And the other ones what we're looking to staff on and help other people write scripts and break story. And it's kind of by having all these different irons and fire that it gives you a chance to, you know, pivot, you know, at any given moment. I think when I was in high school and when I was first starting out, I always thought that every filmmaker was like Quentin Tarantino. They just choose what they want to do next, right? And they have such control over their filmography and they're going to follow up this project with this next project that informs the last project and you get this full view of them as an artist. But for so many filmmakers, there is such a hustle that goes along with it where I think Steven Soderbergh described it this way. He's like, I don't choose what I do next. I work on the next project that gets the most traction. So we're always kind of looking for which project has some traction. And, you know, there's usually a lot of different kind of arrows in that quiver that we're excited about. Yeah, so they're all different parts of the same process in a lot of ways. When you're kind of doing TV shows, staffing on TV shows, you know, it is just such a incredible opportunity. Some of my favorite things that we've been able to be a part of, you know, we've just staffed them. And, you know, you're a small part of a big machine. But like working on American Vandal, is probably the thing that I'm proudest of. And we just got to be writers on that. And we didn't have to do the arduous task of actually getting into production and making it, you know? And the cool thing is, is that when it goes really well, each thing informs the other, right? So when we were working on Vandal, for example, the process of breaking story on Vandal was Dan Lagana, the showrunner's process. It was brilliant. And it's such a great way to organize how you break story and how you work well with other writers simultaneously as opposed to just being in your own head. And so that is something that we've taken and we've plugged into the way Kevin and I now break stories on it, just on our partnership, you know? So yeah, I think, you know, it's, they both really inform each other and we're lucky to get to do them both, really. You had broken down those different projects as TV projects you write on, TV projects you pitch, films you write on, films you write for yourself. I would love to focus a little bit more on maybe films you write for yourself because it sounds like the Block Island Sound was something that and correct me if I'm wrong, produced, directed, and then I imagine locked in distribution for it. But can you walk us through what that process looked like? I guess starting with the inception of the idea, how did you come up with the idea for this film? And then we can navigate through how you got it to finally where it's at now, which is Netflix. Well, with the Block Island Sound, it was inspired really on by a, we made a movie in college that was set on Block Island. And Block Island is this really great place over the summer. 
it's beautiful and it's fun and picturesque and it feels like Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket or something. And we shot this movie when we were in college where it was a zombie movie and we needed to find a place that looked completely deserted. And that's a super expensive thing to do, right? And we're watching featurettes of 28 Days Later. Oh, they went out in London at 6 a.m. when nobody's really around and that's how they shot that. Maybe we do that. But then that seemed kind of felt like it probably wasn't actually going to work. And finally it came into one of our heads that Block Island is essentially deserted over the winter where it goes from 20,000 people to less than 1,000. I think there's probably not going to be that whole lot of people around in their main drag. And so we went out there with, a, you know, maybe five or six other people and shot this movie and really fell in love with Block Island over the winter. It's such a stark difference to the summertime. It's, you know, cold and windswept. And it feels like this, like, Stephen King setting, just a New England, stark, beautiful place. And making that movie, I think, just gave us this real desire to return and do something else. And so this is a more fully formed idea. And it's really, in a lot of ways, our love letter to, to this really gorgeous place. You just talked about the idea. What about the next steps when you guys decide to work on something? Obviously, you're working on a lot of projects. So how do you decide on, we want to move forward with this? And what are those initial next steps? I imagine it's maybe an outline. Is it you guys hopping on a call and hashing it out? What's that next step look like? Typically, the way it works is, you know, we work essentially nine to five every day together, where we both come together in our office and working on a project every day, whether or not it's in post on a film we just, you know, finished or if it's breaking a new story. And every day there's usually something that comes up. It's like, hey, I had this little idea that could be fun to plug into something someday. So there's kind of that little brainstorming session that's not really scheduled out but you know something you know sparked a little idea and then eventually we figure out if there's a little hook to that idea if it's just you know this amorphous thing or if there's like a here's a great twist or here's a great character to plug into it and then it starts forming i think really from there and then usually some idea will grab hold and be the most exciting and if we have the time to do it we'll start really trying to break a story out and the way we do it is you know, before you even get into an outline, we have a big board. So I'm just at two ping pong tables that are up against my wall. And uh, we'll start throwing index cards against it in what we call the hopes and dreams stage, where it's sort of a sandbox of ideas. We're just throwing any idea that we're excited about that could fit into this particular movie. And it's a great opportunity to not stifle ideas, especially when you're working with someone else. So if we have an idea about a possession movie, and something comes up and feels trite or feels like it's come from a, you know, too cliche or doesn't quite fit the original idea. During this first stage, you can just slap it on the board no matter what, because anything kind of goes and you're not going to be using all of these ideas. And then what we do from there, when we actually get into the outlining stage, is we break down our movie by 15 minute chunks. You know, every 15 minutes, there should be a turning point. And we start taking from that big idea bank, that big sandbox, and starting to plug in those little cards for how we would structure out a movie and start filling in. And so a lot of those ideas end up falling off. But it's a great place to start. So the ideas can kind of just flow and you can kind of just brainstorm and have some fun. And then you start actually shaping, you know, the monster that is a full feature film. That's kind of how we break the story and actually write them. And then how we decide if we want to make it an indie film or not then really comes into the process of, can we do it? You know, it's some films are like, this is just 
a big movie and this is going to, we got to do this the traditional route and try to get big money for it to try to get it on the air. And then some stuff you look at and you go, actually, I think we could make this and raise the money ourselves. And it feels kind of small enough. And, and then sometimes you come into a situation where you're just bound and determined to make something. So Block Island Sound is one of those movies that when we showed it to our old agent, he had said like, this is going to be multi, you know, millions and millions of dollars to make. And you're going to have to rent out, you know, you got boat stuff. You're going to have to rent out these tanks in Mexico. It's just, you need to go to a big studio for this. And we kind of believed that for a long time. And so finally we were like, just really wanted to see this thing come to fruition. And we started thinking, okay, how would we do this? Well, we could do this scene in this way. And that's something we could wrap our heads around and do ourselves and wouldn't need a huge budget for. And, and you kind of start paring it down and trying to figure out, okay, what would the budget look like? Okay, can we squeeze that a little tighter? Where can we cut some corners without sacrificing what we love about the movie? And so that becomes kind of the game. And if you can figure out a way to make it work, then you go out to investors and you try to will it into existence. That's pretty much our process. What about the actual screenwriting process itself? You mentioned the outline and breaking the script into every 15 minutes or so. Especially as a duo, I imagine you're going back and forth. Do you each take a piece and work on it? Is it always together, always apart? We've interviewed co-writers before and the process is always different. Our favorite way to do it is to kind of build it from the ground up. There were times where we would you know, cut chunks out and one guy would do the first act, second guy would do the second act. But the best way for us to do it, what gets us the best results is usually we break down the full outline pretty specifically. We know what each scene is going to be. Then one guy just starts. We'll write the first few pages, the first few scenes, whatever it is, whatever strikes them. And when you start running out of steam, you hand it off to the other guy and he reads what you just did and starts doing a pass on that pass you just did. So things that bump, you might change or if a big problem comes up, take a step back and we start talking about, hey, is this, is this actually working where we thought it was going to? So what you end up doing by going back and forth this way, where you're kind of doing a pass on the last guy's pass and then starting to write your own pages, is that you do a couple of things. The first thing is that you end up getting kind of a second draft out of your first draft because we are rewriting each other and trying to improve the work. It also helps you from getting too far off track. You know, sometimes when we used to write scripts on our own and then trade them, we used to write a whole feature and then say, hey, read this feature and, and then do your pass on it. Sometimes you find you're way off at the first act turning point in 30 minutes. And you'd be like, oh, shit, I'm off for the next 60 you know, pages. I wish I knew that while I was writing the first time. So it helps you stay on track as well. But the third thing that it does, which is really handy, is that it gives a certain sense of momentum. It's always fun when you're writing something and you hit a roadblock because you're fatigued or you don't know exactly where it should go after that, even though you have the outline, sometimes there are parts that still need to be figured out. And you run out a little bit of steam and the next guy starts writing and then he writes some more pages. And, you know, I love the way Matt writes and, you know, we have very similar sensibilities. So it's always fun to read over the changes to your own stuff and it feeling like it's shaping further. Then to read some new scenes. They're like, oh, this is a fun scene. I love the way this is starting to work out. And you get extra momentum and extra excitement. So you can't wait to write the next scene. So there is a certain momentum building that comes from that process. So that's typically how we do it. Part of that process too is that you just have to be able to really trust your writing partner and you got to be a fan of their work. I feel fortunate that Kevin and I really like each other's work. You just hear about writing partners and sometimes 
one person's really good at one thing and somebody's really good at a totally opposite thing and maybe it can feel a little more contentious. So I think we were lucky in that way. I think it's really, you know, nurturing that appreciation for each other. And, and I think that's a big piece of the puzzle. And it's also helpful when you have, yeah, we have this trust with each other that you can't help but feel a little sensitive when you write something and then it's like not working. But for us, it's like, well, I'd rather know if it's not working and if it's bumping you, then let's come up with a different way to do a scene or to break a story. I think that's what's been so helpful about writing in television too, is because it is, you know, it's for lack of a better term, it's a group project. You know, you get a bunch of people together writing a project, you're all having to collaborate together. And you'll learn pretty quickly that there's not just one way to do anything, even something that you could be in love with. There's usually, you know, five, six, ten ways that you could write a scene or come up with an obstacle or switch out some kind of device. And you can turn it into something that you'll still enjoy. Once you realize there are multiple ways to tell a story, it really lets your guard down a little bit. So that if the story's bumping the other guy, no problem. Just come up with a new way to do it and it'll still be really enjoyable. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. What about the revision phase? After you write that first draft, I imagine that's just about getting to a finished script. What does that revision process look like? There's kind of two stages to it for us. There's, of course, the beginning, like Kevin was just speaking about, where let's say I'll write a scene, I'll send it to him, and he'll do a revision right out the gate. So you kind of get that second draft. And then we try to sit on it for a minute and then read it together. And we read it out loud, page by page. And we do collab mode on final draft where, you know, if things bump you, you can change right there or you can put a little note. Okay, we got to fix this thing. This doesn't work. Or this character's, you know, personality shifts halfway through the movie or, or whatever it is. So that's a big piece of it. And then we send it off to collaborators and stuff we really trust to get their notes and do the rewrite. And, you know, the rewrite, you know, we joked in the past that sometimes doing those rewrites are just agony, where you're like, I just, uh, I don't want to do this. I was happy enough with this, but they're right, it will make it better. And so sometimes you just have to tear pieces apart and go back in and rewrite it. But the less precious you are, and the more willing you are to bring something back down to the studs that needs to be done, I think the more likely you're going to have something that works. 
Yeah, and it's also comes down to distilling down what notes are helpful and which ones are personal preference. See, Robert Cargill writes about this all the time, where he's like, look, one person gives you a note, it's a suggestion. If five people give you a note, you should really take it. And it's like, there is kind of knowing what kind of notes you get from certain people are always helpful too, to be able to distill down exactly which notes to take, which ones to be precious about. Just because you get a note doesn't mean you should always change something. Sometimes you get a note where there's really a note behind the note where someone might say, you got to cut this character because they're not likable. But in reality, you just have to find a way to get your audience to root for that character. It might just be plugging in a different device in order to do that. So sometimes it's trying to really understand exactly what the note is and what the problem is. Why are people bumping on something? You know, It's not everyone you're sending the script to necessarily know exactly how story structure works or how characters are built, but they're going to give you their feelings on it, which is such a helpful thing to know if someone is feeling one way or the other. And then you try and use the tools of the trade to try to kind of correct what's going wrong. When you start writing the screenplay, you are working on the outline. And I imagine at that point, you start thinking through who the characters are, what process, you know, what steps do you take to iron out who the characters are? Do you have a template? Are there certain key questions you ask yourself when you're trying to figure out who these characters are so that when you sit down to write them, you can almost effortlessly write in their words? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like sometimes the characters reveal themselves as you are writing on the page and you're like discovering them, as weird as that sounds. Sometimes we find ourselves writing characters and we're like, oh, this character they really have the voice of this other character we've written in this project. And then it was a different thing. And you know, and you realize like, oh, that's kind of one of our archetypes that we lean on. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways we look at it. There's like this Aaron Sorkin quote where he says like, characters are not people, they just look like people. And he's like, they are born the minute they show up on screen, they die the minute they're off screen. And I think that's really true for us. A lot of times a character is a device to tell the story. So a lot of times we think of characters in terms of point of view. You know, what story are we trying to tell? And how do these characters help tell it? You know, not always because a character is someone that we knew or a caricature of someone we knew, but because it helps tell a point of view. So with Funeral Kings, there's a film about, you know, male adolescence, about being 14 years old, about looking like a kid, but feeling like an adult and being very frustrated that people don't see you as an adult. So there are these, you know, three, four characters that have, a range of point of views about their feelings about this. So you have some that are very secure with how they feel and some that are very insecure how they feel. And because you're telling these different points of view, they suddenly have a voice very different from one another. It really helps you talk about this topic and play with those themes because you have these point of views to play with. So that's, that's usually helpful for us. So it's a lot of times kind of looking at them as devices and figuring out, you know, who is this character going to talk to? Who's going to challenge them? Who's going to create nice obstacles? So it's usually kind of in that, how functional are these characters? and How can we use them in that way? Oftentimes we talk about it too in a way where it's like, you know, your main character, your main couple, two or three characters can be these real three-dimensional characters, you know, and they can be their own worst enemy is a game we play often where it's like, what is getting in this person's way? Why are they their own worst enemy? That really helps you kind of get a depth to that character. But then I think one of the things that, a lot of writers have a big aversion to, but is actually super helpful, is allowing yourself to write some two-dimensional characters who serve a purpose, who serve a device, you know, in order to facilitate the story for your three-dimensional characters. And once you open yourself up to that, it can be really helpful because you can have these characters who are 
you know, like a great device to create rootability and equity in one of your characters is having a bully bully that person. And so sometimes you just got to write somebody who's, who's a jerk. You want them to feel like they exist in the real world. But that person is a jerk to your main character. Well, then you kind of like that main character more. And we made a movie recently where an actress is like, wow, I'm kind of an asshole in this thing. You know, can I say this or that? And then I'd be a little nicer. And I was like, well, your job is to be the asshole. So this other person <laughs> looks like less of an asshole. Yeah. So sometimes giving yourself a little bit of a green light to write some characters that just have a point of view, that are just giving you one side of the story to help shade your main character, that can be a real valuable asset, I think. And when you think about the medium, too, how many three-dimensional characters you get depend on if you're making a movie or a TV. With TV, there's so many three-dimensional characters because you're telling a story that goes on for seasons and seasons, and sometimes the character starts as two-dimensional, and then suddenly they become three-dimensional. But with a movie, you don't have that much real estate to tell a story. So for us, usually with a movie, you get you know, two or three characters that are very three-dimensional. But with a TV show, you might get 10, and they might become more to three-dimensional as you go along. So yeah, it really depends on the medium as well. This film premiered on Netflix. At what point did the Netflix situation happen? Did you write this, produce it, and then pitch it to Netflix for distribution? Or do you have to get them on board earlier? Walk us through how that works. I mean, it was purely independent. So Netflix wasn't involved until the very end. You know, we raised the money ourselves, wrote it, produced it, really got it through the finish line. And then started submitting to festivals. And, you know, it's an old school approach. We've been doing that with a lot of our indies. And it's so far, it's worked out okay for us. The way you do it is you raise that money, you shoot the movie, you edit the movie, and then you start sending it out to film festivals, hoping to gain traction at one of the big ones or ones that you know you have that have a good relationship with the press because press is really helpful. If you can get great reviews, it can sometimes really get the attention of good distributors. And then, you start trying to sell it to actual distributors. And the way we've had luck doing that is through sales reps, which is the traditional way to do it. So we had an old executive producer who was a sales rep in our first few films who had relationships with small distributors and would knock on their doors and have them watch the film and see if they wanted to distribute it. And on this last film, The Block Island Sound, we had a bigger sales rep company get attached to it called XYZ. And they, they helped us through the sales process. So we got into Fantasia Film Festival last year up in Montreal, which is a big genre of film festival. And it was at Fantasia that we got a lot of press and got, you know, a lot of, you know, really kind reviews that helped kind of boost our profile a bit. And XYZ was able to use that and the film itself to go out to a bunch of distributors and try and get some offers on the film. So it really is the kind of old school 90s way of doing it where you make a movie and then bring it out and try and sell it. You can never really pick and choose necessarily exactly who you're going for. You always have these big ideas of who's going to end up with it. And I think Netflix is not an area where we thought the movie was going to go to. A lot of their films have had really big stars in it. They've had kind of a mandate to do that more lately. So it was a huge surprise to us when they went for it. We were super excited about it because obviously Netflix has such a massive base to work with and so many people that subscribe to their service. So we were stoked. But it was, yeah, very much the traditional route where, you know, you raise the money, you shoot the film, and then you try and sell it. I have a couple of bonus questions for you guys. Well, let's say three. The first one, for those listening, because this is an audio podcast, I can see 
both Kevin and Matt right now. <laughs> and Kevin is wearing a Celtics hat. I don't know if we mentioned earlier, but these guys are from Rhode Island. For writers, coffee is big. For some, some don't. Part of writing, is that a big part of your writing process, getting that motivation? And when you choose your coffee, are you Dunkin' Donuts guys? I have to ask that <laughs> since you're from the East Coast. You know, Dunkin' Donuts is not even available in Los Angeles for the longest time when we get out here, which is a real bummer. And then they finally started expanding. I think there's like the military base or something in San Diego is where you have to go. Right, Let me tell you, right. some, people, some people would make the trek all the way down to San Diego to get it. But finally, Dunkin' Donuts has made their way out here. But yeah, you know, coffee, I'm a cold brew guy. I enjoy a good cold brew in the morning. Sometimes I'll even heat up the cold brew. And that's been our ritual. Our editor on Blockout Sound, and he's edited 13 cameras as well, Derek Desmond, makes a mean French press. And I got to (laughs) say, it really is a game changer in post when you can get a guy like Derek working his magic on the French press. So uh, yeah, copy is definitely a a big component. I feel like it's actually kind of funny how much of a component it is because it is like after your first cup of coffee, your brain is just firing better. And so it's always like trying to save the coffee for the last minute. And it's like, oh, we're going to start working out. All right, let me just chug this down now so I can get like two hours of good thinking going. Yeah. And when it gets wasted on like, you know, logistics, like, you know, working on LLC paperwork for the movie or something like that, like, oh man, I wasted all that good coffee energy on some paperwork. We should have been working creatively on this thing. So yeah, it is. I don't know if it's an addiction or just a complete dependence at this point. My next bonus question, building off that, you guys are both from New England and went to school in Boston. Is there a world where you ever write one of these Boston films? I know they're parodied a lot on SNL. Is there a world where you guys ever write a Boston-based film? I kick myself that. I feel like we missed the window for like the real Boston. I mean, how many Boston crime movies came out like 10 years ago? It was like one after the next. Everyone's like, oh, it's another good Boston crime movie. You've got to watch this. And now it is just so parodied that I'm like, damn it, did we miss that? Because I fucking love those movies and I would love to watch those things. So yeah, it's on the table. As long as people are willing to listen to them, yeah, hell yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah. If we can get a budget for it, I'm in. Second to last question. If you guys could take any writer, living or dead, to any restaurant, we usually ask fast food restaurant. People always shoot me down and don't want to take anyone to a fast food restaurant. But you could take any writer to any restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? That's a great question. I'm such a Tarantino fanatic that like, just being able to just listen to that guy talk for a while would be amazing. And I would probably want to just pick something from one of his movies. You know? I was thinking to... the same thing, like Musso and Franks or something like that. Sure. You know, like a Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs is like the big inspiration for us when we were in high school, when we realized like, you can make movies like this. It was so eye-opening. It was so violent. and raw and, and insane like ah oh, that's all i want to do for the rest of my life so yeah hearing tarantino just hold court at a place like moose and franks that sounds pretty good to me or like el coyote or something like that like i love going yeah. there before going to the new bev to watch one of his movies so yeah that would be great <laughs> love that and the final question if you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to the writers who are listening right now what's the one thing you would say you know, for me, our commencement speaker in college had this great speech where he talked about, there were like the four, four rules that he said in gaining success. And it's a lot of stuff that you've heard before, like, you know, choose a goal and surround yourself with successful people and, you know, stay tenacious. But the big one that 
I never really heard anyone say before, which is really eye-opening, was choose what you're willing to sacrifice in order to achieve your goals. And it was such an eye-opener because I had a lot of friends who moved out to LA or wanted to make movies, but there's usually, I want to do that, but I need to have a job or I need to live comfortably or I need to you know, have a certain lifestyle while doing it. So there's always these things that kind of stop them from being able to really go after it. And for us, when you take that moment to really decide what you're willing to sacrifice, it helps give good perspective when you're going through the rough times. So for us, we were like, I don't mind being broke if it means making my first feature. So the goal was to make the first feature and what we were willing to sacrifice was being broke and not eating particularly well. You know, we survived on a very, very limited budget. And I think there was five of us living in a very small apartment at one point so we could pay dirt cheap rents. And it helped give us good perspective because as we were going through that, and it was really tough and sometimes was kind of a bummer. You remind yourself, yeah, this is what I was willing to trade in order to get this first feature made. So perspective is really huge in trying to keep your spirits high because there are times where it can be debilitating, it can be a bummer, and it's always good to remember, you know, what you're doing it for and then the trade you've decided to make. The other things too that we tell young writers all the time is so often people fall in love with the one project, right? And they're like, this is going to be the one that breaks me into the career. And it's really helpful to write that project and then write the next project and then work on the next one, you know, because it's a terrible metaphor, but it's the way I describe it to people is breaking in is sort of like trying to break down a castle wall, like a big medieval castle wall. And you've got a cannon and your script, your big idea, that's one cannonball. It's possible you hit that wall in just the right way that thing comes crumbling down. But most likely, you're going to need a few cannonballs. And so each script is a new cannonball. And it's just the more you don't become precious about that one idea and have multiple ideas, multiple scripts, the more likely it is that you'll be able to actually succeed and keep working. And so that's always a big piece for me to share with people. Lock Island Sound released on Netflix on March 11th. You guys wrote, directed, and produced it. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug, shout out, social media, anything like that? No, just excited to share the film. It's been a long time coming and excited it's finally out there and hope people enjoy it. Yeah, you can catch us on Twitter if you... I mean, we're always happy to talk to people and give people advice, so feel free to reach out to us if anybody has any questions about the experience and what it's like to, to do all this. Well, thank you guys again, and thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.